Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And that can only mean we are here to continue our investigation of the MC2 Universe's Fallout. You guys heard about Ultimate Fallout when the Ultimate Universe fell away, when they decided to get rid of 2099. They did that like, I don't know, it was like a 2099 comic nursing home where everybody moved after the Doom stuff. I kind of didn't read it gotta be honest but here we have found you know tom defalco's home for wayward comic book characters and we are continuing the the work to see all of the places that this universe fucking went it the universe itself amusingly never it would be really funny if there was like a thing where they were like the mc2 universe shattered and then all of this stuff like scattered to the winds and randomly we find it in our universe which is what it feels like but what actually happens is just like it leaves any collective consciousness whatsoever and randomly some people think of it and throw it into one thing or another. And as a bit of a refresher, our investigation ran about 10 episodes of the core content that was Spider-Girl 0 to Spider-Girl 100. Then we had five episodes that covered all of the amazing Zero through Spider-Girl the end years. And now we find ourselves looking at some really interesting threads that represent the MC2's sort of legacy. We took a look at Thunderstrike Volume 2, numbers 1 through 5, which were the exact same fucking creative team bringing Thunderstrike to the proper Marvel Universe. And then we took a look at Captain America Corps, which was a miniseries that didn't do a whole lot for us, but featured American Dream. Now, today, we stand on the precipice of a single panel appearance, which is significant for, like, 15 reasons, but also, we're going to be taking a look at the continued adventures of Thunderstrike, much to, I guess, my deep chagrin, we're going to be taking a look at Thor, Asgard's Avenger, which was a Thor handbook style entry, as well as Avengers Academy number 20, which just wait till I get to that one. We're also going to be taking a look at Fear Itself, the home front, five through seven. And I think my main question for you, TK, before we even take a step forward, is when you think of the MC2, do you go to Thunderstrike? I mean, B level, maybe B plus level. You know, like, obviously, when I think of MC2, I think of Spider-Girl. I think of Rena. I think of J2. But because I think of J2, very quickly after, I think of Thunderstrike. So, but it's that Thunderstrike, of course. So it's a weird, he's not one of the big ones, but he's not like, if you were like, uh, don't forget about Lady Octopus, that would not be who first came to mind when we talked about MC2. I agree. It's not that I think Thunderstrike was a missed opportunity exactly in the MC2. They could have played him up a little bit more, but for an Avenger, he got a fair share of spotlight in that universe. It's that this Thunderstrike is not Thunderstrike. He is a giant fucking bag of sand. He just sits there and takes up a lot of room, and I have no use for the fuck for this guy. And it feels as though Thunderstrike was something that Tom DeFalco brought over and was just at the right time 
of some shifting narratives in comics, and that's kind of the big theme of today's episode. This is really about a shifting point in the comic continuum at Marvel, where we were seeing that initial turnover into the reimagining of the stable and roster, and I am excited to see where this all goes ultimately throughout our investigation, but as much as I'm excited to talk about a lot of what we're talking about, this is a your mileage may vary on the content sort of situation. To say that the mileage may vary is particularly generous. Your mileage will likely not be super great, unless you really are just like the son of Eric Masterson, but done specifically for the 616 in a way that is less appealing than the one that was done for 982, but the costume is kind of cool maybe sometimes, then written by people that don't really seem to get it and don't get any of the other characters that they're writing around it. Sold. That person is going to be very happy. For the rest of us, this is rough. And it gets rough in ways that I don't expect. So to sort of reassess, we're going to be talking about Avengers Volume 4, Number 2, which was released in August 2010, which was a part of the Brian Michael Bendis Heroic Age. Now, the Heroic Age gave way to Fear Itself, and Fear Itself gave way to Shattered Heroes. It was a big thing. And we're going to be going from the second issue of the main Avengers title at the height of the Heroic Age to a big jump into Fear Itself. Now, Fear Itself was originally a crossover meant to be helmed by Matt Fraction and Ed Brubaker, but Ed Brubaker just sort of became Ed Brubaker before Matt Fraction became Matt Fraction. So Ed Brubaker kind of hopped out on Fear Itself. Now, originally, it was going to be kind of the three big pinnacle heroes of the Marvel Universe, Thor, Captain America, and Iron Man. But pretty quickly on, when Ed Brubaker departed, the Captain America stuff stopped making quite so much sense coming from Matt Fraction, which doesn't really work when the main bad guy is Sin, the female Red Skull. And this was a story about lots of hammers, kind of making the mace seem less special, taking possession of, because it was they took possession just as much as the characters took possession of the hammers, taking possession of heroes and villains. And so we saw like an evil Ben Grimm possessed by a hammer. It was a weird time. There were really cool parts of it. There were really cool elements. The design was really interesting, but it's not per se a crossover that people really remember. Had you had any relationship with Fear Itself? Nope. I staunchly checked out. I believe I read whatever the X-Men crossover was just because I was kind of in the rote habit of just picking up X-Books. But this was a real low point in me being interested in the rest of the Marvel Universe. I was very bitter about the ongoing treatment of the X-Men and the fact that increasingly, as it looked like the MCU was going to pick up steam uh, and Fox was really going to try and keep giving it a go with the X-Men, that as far as the comics were concerned, the X-Men were persona non grata and it was just becoming more and more difficult to watch. It was such a weird time because they would still put good writers on the books. Like I imagine a lot of writers were like, I'll do stuff. I just want to be on the X-Men. And so good stories would happen, but they had to always include the reality of what was going on. And that status quo was so bad to me, but I really missed a lot of stuff. And I understand like I, a lot of it, I don't actually know if I'm actually missing anything or not. So it's always funny to like pop into a crossover like this, where we're reading a really tangential piece of it and it isn't good. And then I really have to go like, is this just because sometimes you try and publish too many different stories and you know, some of them are, are losers or was this whole crossover not great? I think fear itself is an example of a crossover that was Marvel not understanding how to work this changing engine. One of the big things that makes crossover so complex is the lead time on comics really gets 
undervalued and undersold. And I never mean to question or call into any amount of questionability the things that writers or artists say in interviews, but oftentimes comics are planned four years in advance, four and a half years in advance. These big crossover beats are thought out, you know, five, six years ahead of when the event happens. And names change hands and characters, books change hands and characters might change names. But at the end of the day, some version of what was pitched five years ago does ultimately come out. I have to believe that when Matt Fraction's Thor, which was at one point very ballyhooed, was in a very different state, fear itself was probably probably a little bit stronger a crossover. But when we consider that JMS left abruptly, leaving Kieran Gillen to fill in, and then Matt Fraction's run is announced, and then Kieran Gillen moves over to a side book, which becomes slightly more successful in the form of Journey into Mystery, which is a much-loved title. And now, you know, we already had the Journey into Mystery omnibus, and we're finally getting a Thor by Matt Fraction omnibus. I love Matt Fraction, but Thor writer he ain't. And it, for me, was far from a miss, but it really wasn't the hit I wanted it to be. So dialing into four issues that were just straight-up fear itself had me a little eye-rolling. I think that's fair. This was a very particular corner of this crossover. You, I mean, And I say that knowing little about what else happened, but it feels tucked away and that feels especially odd given the fact that this is all very near and dear to Thor and Thunderstrike is a pretty significant Thor character and this is a young new version of Thunderstrike that kind of just got the intro. I'm surprised that they didn't want to do more with him on the one hand because he really was a blank slate. On the other because of what and who the character is and has been for the little time that he's been around, it's very understandable why nobody wanted to use. And the issues that we're looking at really represent a vast span of not just stories, but creators, which is exciting because after so many episodes of the same names so many times, it is exciting to see some new names come in. And something that I do think about is Avengers Volume 4, number two from August 2010 was written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by John Romita Jr., Klaus Jansen, and Dean White, with letters by Corey Pettit. That's a powerhouse team. As much as I love the creator on Avengers Academy, Christos Gage, it's hard not to notice that Christos Gage doesn't really get very high-profile books, and that the art team of Tom Ranney, Scott Hanna, Jeremy Cox, and letterer Joe Caramagna almost lifts directly out of X-Men Forever, kind of takes a little bit of the wind out of the sails on Avengers Academy. Not to mention... Even, you know, it's a little disappointing for us just because it's very little Thunderstrike meat to chew on. But even given that, like even setting that aside, the introduction of the characters as it happens and what we're going to talk about versus how we see any of them, especially Thunderstrike in the following issues, which is to say not at all, is a little odd. Yeah. And on the subject of a little odd, I think that some of the writing that was done on the Fear Itself Homefront mini, which saw a story by Fred Van Lente with pencils and inks by Alessandro Vitti, colors by Javier Tartaglia, and letters by Dave Lanfear. It felt very much like that story cheated toward Amadeus Cho and Victor Alvarez, who are both characters that Fred Van Lente worked extensively on, and kind of didn't leave a lot of room for the other characters, which I guess is sort of Spider-Girl syndrome in a way that we could have never seen because Spider-Girl didn't have a universe that had other writers to play. But man, I mean, on the one hand, I was pleased about it for Laura, although I do feel 
like he got a certain Laura vibe that I enjoyed. I think he was maybe a little mistaken on how much the character had evolved at that point, but there was something about Laura that worked, although she she got less time from him, and in some ways I'm okay with that because she really needs a special hand. But man, I was disappointed in his Thunderstrike. And I was a little shocked because as I read it, I thought to myself, oh no, this is kind of another Tom DeFalco situation where maybe this guy is just a little too old to be writing teenagers. And then I went and checked and did the math. And at the time, he was 39. I'm 37. I don't think I should be writing teenagers like really actively, but I like to think that I would do a bit better job than this. Yeah, there were things that really left me feeling a bit shaky. But let's talk about uh, let's talk about some numbers Please. for a minute. Because this is a first. We have never had an episode where for six issues to be discussed, five of them sold less than one of them all combined. Oh my god. So Thor Asgard Avengers Handbook from June of 2011 sold just over 9,000 copies. It's an Asgard Avenger, you know, what the fuck? It's a handbook. You know, it's an Ohatmu, but for Asgard. But it's so funny too, because it's not called an Ohatmu. It's called Thor Asgard's Avenger. And you said, you know, the notes for what to read were Thor Asgard's Avenger Handbook, which it doesn't really say handbook anywhere on there. So at first I'm looking for the companion to Thor Asgard's Avenger. And then it took me a minute to realize that's what it was. And I thought, wait, is there a story? Why is it called? Oh, it's just an Ohatmu? Why is it called an Ohatmu? I think because Ohatmu started to have its own caveat of why people don't care. And we saw the saga books, like, you know, X-Men Curse of the Vampire Saga. We saw like Ohatmu pages getting stuck in there instead. Which is as I opened it and saw the information, I was like, is that what's going to happen? Are they front loading it? But then there's going to be a story in the back. It just made no sense. And I have to imagine in some way that has to have contributed to sales. Well, you know, speaking of sales, I just want to comment that Avengers Academy in 2011 was selling 23,400 copies, which with Spider-Girl, we were like, tragic. But Avengers Academy ran a pretty long fucking time and got a spinoff and was a part of multiple crossovers and has a really powerful legacy. Look at the success of Reptil. So you know what? Christos Gage, dude, I have always respected you, your amazing work ethic, and your ability to write in multiple genres. And I'm just so glad that I finally have an opportunity to talk about, you know, what a fucking great writer he is. And I'm not just saying that because he's, you know, cool Greek dude. But I really think getting an opportunity to talk about what is a terrible issue of Avengers Academy is really exciting. I mean, it does give us an opportunity to return to the teen sphere of thought and the youngster in need of training and the character that is reflective of a broader idea of a character archetype. It's for Thunderstrike, unfortunately. I really, after all of this and in association with what we've done, this really makes me wish for something like this for Mayday. Well, what we do get for Thunderstrike with a vague Mayday stand-in, and I am, <sighs> God, I can't get over how much I would have loved to have written this. Fear itself, the home front five through seven, released from October to December of 2011, yet is kind of referenced in the October 2011 Avengers Academy issue, sold uh, slightly diminishing. I mean, really, it went down about a thousand copies an issue from just about 20,000 copies to a little over 18,000 to just under 17,500. So it really didn't lose a whole lot. It lost less than 2,500 copies across three months. That's, we've seen miniseries drop 10,000 copies issue to issue. That's nothing. And maybe it's because the other stories were better, but that really does surprise me. Right. So I think it's time to unveil it. No. 
<laughs> Avengers Volume Four Number Two sold ninety eight thousand seven hundred and eighty eight fucking copies. <laughs> oh my god! Like I can't. I don't care that I just sounded like him having an orgasm. I can't get past what it was like to read comics at that point. Now, Siege for me was the jump off because I had jumped in at New X Men, so Disassembled pulled me in, and I was already, you know, Daredevil is like I have not collected comics for years and secretly kept a Daredevil pull list at one comic shop because I literally, even after I told everyone in my life I stopped collecting comics, I still collected Daredevil. Couldn't quit, Matt. Can't. I just can't. It'll never happen. And because he's usually one book, it makes life really easy to just have that uninterrupted. So I think my Daredevil run starts at like 17 and just goes till... 700 something right so i really remember you know the bendisification of the marvel universe and i worked at a comic shop during house of m which i to this day maintain is not a very good crossover i don't care for it i don't really love AUs as the only thing going on and i think it's a trope that bendis used a little too frequently from house of m to battle of the atom and there and like this this fucking story this so, you know, I like that he likes to show things through mirrors, but Dark Rain was a dark mirror. Secret Invasion was an imposter mirror. Siege was the destruction of the mirror by holding up a better champion to the darkness that had taken over. He just really likes to tell stories through reflections. This for me, I was living in Orlando at the time, working parades at the Magic Kingdom, and I was reading these on my afternoons I would uh, go to this comic shop that Josh uh, Wheel and I would have never known each other at the time but we both would go to all the time. Guy had the most amazing Doctor Who toys so I could buy them for Kevo and and so much of the heroic age just kind of drew me back in the John Romita Jr. art, the excitement of the return of some of these heroes I was in and I look back and I have no idea what I read. I was very curious about what the heroic age was going to mean and what this big sparkly bannered relaunch was for and about and I think maybe I picked up the first issue of Avengers but immediately I mean and it's unfortunate because I just I don't think John Romita Jr. can draw a single panel that I won't enjoy no matter what like even if he is like no I completely screwed this one up and I forgot to send the corrected one I would still think it was perfect so I was disappointed to not be getting into this but (laughs) I sort of feel like I really have to sit and go over my kind of personal timeline but I was having some real question marks about Bendis and I kind of got to a point where I I felt like I was I was sitting him out a little bit and really had to make my final reckoning with his X-Men work that kind of culminated in Bobby coming out and I think it was a very love-hate thing up through that X-Men run and then things settled and he's not one of my like ultimate favorite best creators but I think my like resentment and anger and frustration was a bit too intense and misplaced and I found a nice little middle ground. And looking at a book like this, I think at the time I really hated it. I now don't love it, but I can understand the appeal. The art is really beautiful and I I get the Bendis wheels turning. You're really right about the alternate universe thing. And I think the thing is that Marvel had this love of being like, oh, but it's not an alternate universe. It's just a spell that Wanda cast and that's a different thing. But then of course, if they ever want to reference it again, 
and they do so through being like alternate universe number the house of m universe and they always want to because of course you do so the you know same thing with uh age of x it's not an alternate universe it's just that legion like created this little pocket universe which is a different thing if you ever want to see basilisk again they're gonna say basilisk of earth number so it just felt like there was a time where marvel was like yes please give us an au that we can say is not one for plot reasons and then later we'll figure out what to do with that and to get to the story that we're going to discuss this segment avengers volume four number two is not necessarily a super key issue for the mc2 but instead it represents a key purpose of how the mc2 matters and for me i think that one of the main things that makes the mc2 significant in this story is the worlds it's put against regardless of the plot of this issue we wind up in a moment where the avengers who include novar who's currently going by protector weird they are looking at a multi-dimensional spread and some of the universes include a an alternate maestro with the next avengers kids which was an animated movie that was released a few years before this there's a days of future past glimpse and there is sure enough all the way to the left our mc2 and that's pretty interesting to me yeah i mean i don't know what to do with it it really makes me smile but again the thing that i always go to ultimates exist or the ultimate universe existed back then (laughs) doing everything the mc2 was doing but successfully at higher profile so it's that idea of the thing is a industry guys thing so mc2 as written by tom defalco is a comic book writer's universe where if you are deep in this stuff you might appreciate a little bit more what this guy did and so that's the reason you put that in rather than you know something that might be a little more recognized that is just like a potential explanation that i come up with off the top of my head because i really am pleasantly surprised but grasping pleasantly at reasons to figure out who thought of this and who was like yeah this is definitely the one of these like very limited spaces to depict alternate universes because the kind of caliber of people that they put up on this is fascinating to me because this issue features a number of characters appearing and one of the things about those characters is it includes two different versions of Mayday in the same issue we get both MC2 Mayday as well as her Venom counterpart from the Earth X line we see an alternate version of Age of Apocalypse designated Earth 10082 which is a specific alternate version of Age of Apocalypse which Bendis would bring back up in all new X-Men number 36. In addition to that, we see an unknown strife. We see a number of alternate versions of characters, including a kill raven. We see all manner of major forces in the bigger picture of the Marvel kind of like wiki hyper deep cut mythos, which includes Wileatus Autolycus, who is a ghost rider that was transformed by alternate magical flames into a spirit of vengeance not a proper ghost not a proper ghost rider who can summon a death cycle out of nothing he can just kind of like create it as needed who appeared in a guardians of the galaxy comic in the 90s he had like 15 total appearances all throughout the guardians he would show up occasionally after that but you know he's not like a, a major player or anything he was in galactic guardians for a couple of issues so there are some deep cuts here and they're done by people who even if I don't always feel that Brian Michael Bendis has the most respect 
for the emotional authority that some of these characters conjure up. I do feel that this is kind of an interesting way to do deep cuts and the escalating this is, the bringing MC2 up a notch by having them in the leftmost image really does a lot for me. Well, and I'll also say them and the uh, future Avengers kids with Maestro, they are contained in a single, like, I want to say panel, but it's not a standard panel. It's divided by like weird magical energy or universal energy lines. They get their own slot with the characters from their universe and nobody else. The two panels in between are kind of a hodgepodge where you've got Logan from Days of Future Past with a Sentinel, but then you've got the Iron Man of 2020 right next to Logan. You've got, you know, in one panel, Logan from Days of Future Past, you've got the Sentinel there, but then right next to that is Spider-Man 2099 and a version of Doom. These are all characters from different universes, not a cohesive one. Next panel, you've got Logan and I guess Magneto, you would say, from Age of Apocalypse. That's the alternate Age of Apocalypse, yeah. But then a Cable and Strife that are not from that. That's that you've also got the Mayday who is not from that. So in those two middle panels, it's just a hodgepodge everywhere. But on the sides, you've got just the MC2 characters in their own little thing. And I just I find it really interesting. There's so much to be said for the characters that get included in this MC2 appearance. I'm really excited to see them. We see J2, we see Spider-Girl, Mainframe, American Dream, Freebooter. Saberclaw and Blue Streak. And this grouping is so unique because I don't think it was ever the team. Uh I mean, yeah, no. For one thing, Mayday always question mark when it comes to Avengers. But of course, you have to have her there because she's the most recognizable thing from MC2. And then yeah, I mean, it really is just I guess there was like a really brief overlap of Saberclaw and Amer- Saberclaw and American Dream are kind of the two that make it a little more complicated. Because there was a time when American Dream was on with all these people and then she leaves after her story and Saberclaw has just kind of come in the mix at that point. So it's a very specific time, but particularly the inclusion of Saberclaw over like Stinger would have been one that I thought you would see instead. Blue Streak and Freebooter too are just like not the most visually iconic of the Avengers next that we got. So I don't know. It's very interesting because to keep saying. this is a really weird way to keep the MC to alive in concept I have no problem with any method of keeping these characters in the discussion but this story doesn't go anywhere for the MC2. Bendis in his Spider-Verse work as you know one of the people who did Spider-Men and crossed the characters over doesn't do anything with Mayday either in fact we've made so many comments about the weird nature of the relationship between the MC2 and the Ultimate line that, that this is Bendis's only time playing with the MC2 feels a bit like a wasted opportunity, but it also makes me want to pull this moment out. This team. Even if it can't be the MC2. Even if it has to be MC2.1. I'm fine with it because I feel like the idea that the Marvel offices in 2010, which this is as the Spider-Girl titles are winding down, as they are coming to their conclusion, this might have been released, in fact, the same month as Spider-Girl The End. I find myself very curious about why the Marvel offices would let this go to print and then do nothing with it. This is the first of many strange inclusions 
versions of the MC2 into background triptychs. And, you know, this is almost a Disney level of sneaking hidden Mickeys in. Hidden Mickeys are a thing where oftentimes there's hidden Mickey heads throughout attractions. There's also something known as the Disney Sea, S-E-A, which is uh, an explorer society that has been written into a lot of Disney famous attraction lore. And this group of society explorers are like the core connective tissue between all the parks now. And if the Marvel offices were willing to do something with it, I would have been really excited to see them do something with the MC2 in that regard. It's also interesting that this is the arc that features the appearance of the Avengers Next Kids from the animated series. Another sort of like, it just didn't quite work out, attempt at kidifying the MCU, the MC2, the Marvel Universe. There's so many, it's hard to get it right. And that's really the the funny thing about it. Just the, you, you, you can't ever stop attempting to kidify or youth the whatever is going on in the Marvel Universe. Mayday was an attempt to return to teenhood for the spider stuff and something like the Avengers Next cartoon was really like kids, like kids, kids, not like teenagers. And it's always going to be... I don't want to say crapshoot because I think there's there's some pieces of the formula that if you line up properly, at the very least, you're going to have a better chance of creating something that resonates with the audience that you're going for. But yeah, the inclusion of these two as kind of the opposing sides of this attempt to never stop appealing to the young people is pretty funny. But I really do wonder what the feeling was. I'd love to know what both Bendis and John Romita Jr. felt about including this if it was a send-off to a co-worker in the office that, you know, was winding down his run and they'd been impressed by it or just thought he'll be in the office less, so let's give him a nice goodbye. Any, I can think of any number of reasons why this was a thing, and I'm just so curious, but what a joy to get to see some of my favorite characters from the MC2 drawn by John Romita Jr. for one panel. And like, this is so dumb, and it makes me feel silly, but just the idea that American Dream got to be in front of that Steve. Steve Rogers mm-hmm. for one second. Mm-hmm. And, you know, thinking about how Protector was an attempt to not have double Captain Marvels and thinking about how we were looking at an age of heroes where they're looking at the, you know, the Avengers next kids coming up, MC2 being what it is. We're going to look at some stories later this episode that feature a character who would ultimately go on to be called Wolverine, featuring a character who would ultimately go on to use the code name Hulk, featuring characters who were already using existing code names like Thunderstrike and Power Man. This really was a turning point for the idea of the Marvel legacy machine. We were really giving up that notion of it's got to be that version of that character and no one else can fill in. And we were starting to see a move toward a bigger picture. Admittedly, I don't think that always worked out for Bucky. I think Bucky really, by virtue of being like, you know, one of the unresurrectables, I think bringing back an unresurrectable kind of damaged the quality of the character in a lot of ways and I'm grateful for what Bucky represents now but at the time I was just like nope it's a mistake good job bringing back Uncle Ben fuckos and now I'm like okay Uncle Ben with a robot arm but still kind of like Uncle Ben yeah I mean they're always going to want to flirt with the untouchable because it's always that thing that's left and I think we've seen some charming results with a character like Spider-Gwen and Gwenpool but there's also that side of it that's just like my cynical side 
side is just disappointed that they couldn't keep their hands off it. Even though I like the character, even though the explanation is very clear that it is not the Gwen Stacy we all know and love. It's not somebody I even really care about, so whatever. But, you know, that they just can't help themselves is something I'm always kind of paying attention to. And and I come from X-Men, so Jean Grey is one of those that, you know, I spent most of my, uh, all of my 20s, right? I spent all of my 20s and into my 30s slowly coming to terms with the fact that Jean Grey had become an unresurrectable. And now things are very different. It's nature of long-term serial storytelling. We got to play around with this stuff and it's always going to have mixed results. That's one of the reasons that I think I loved what Secret Wars did with creating a conceptualized entry point for every one of these universes. I made some comments in our recent coverage of Avengers about how I believe that the Age of Conchu arc by Bendis works because giving physicality to the power of something in a metaphoric kind of analogous way is very clever. And I think there is a kind of the unwritten Mike Carey, Peter Gross contextual way that these books existing means that they should have multiversal miniseries that you can access in a meaningful way. And there's something about the idea that these universes can look in on one another. Uh, a voyeuristic excitement for understanding themselves reflectively that I just so wish the MCU could have ever gotten. I wish that Spider-Girl could see that she wound up a whole lot better than Earth-X Venom May Parker. And I wish that American Dream could see that she did a whole lot better than Bucky did at being Captain America. And I wish that Saberclaw could see that he has no purpose in any reality and so he should just be fucking glad that he's allowed to be here. These are all really important lessons for these characters. There's no possible way to give a single panel a grade, but if I had to say what this panel means to me, it means to me that the MC2 universe gets to kind of carry on in some way. It's just such a special thing for us now and for me from my childhood seeing someone that we always questioned why wasn't he doing MC2 work? Get to do a little bit of MC2 work feels almost like what we've been asking for has value and I think it's reinforced by the pseudo MC2 we get in Homefront but that's both further and farther away at the same time. I think we agree I mean just to see two greats say this thing that increasingly got treated like it didn't really matter and not always for unfair reasons to see two giants of comic books say this actually did matter and to do so in a way that is reverent and beautifully rendered it is a special moment I'm going to be real. We have been really, really selective about our Ohatmu coverage as a rule. I love my Ohatmus. I love them so much. I call them Ohatmus. That's got to stand for something. But I definitely question how much you can learn from an Ohatmu after I read this one. And I don't have any real complaint about it. Like, I'm not coming for it in any way. But I don't know that I feel this really provided me a whole lot. The thing that just really kills me is this whole Thunderstrike thing. And then at the very end of the entire description of like, I mean, it's just like a retelling of the one story that he's been in because that's all there is. 
And then it, there's a little note about Earth 982 Thunderstrike. Oh, I can't wait to get to that. I am deliciously hungry to talk about that. You know, I feel as though ultimately there were roughly five handbook appearances of the Marvel 982. Roughly, it appeared in the handbook for Spider-Geddon via Mayday. It appears in the handbook for alternative universes. Alternative universes, Sure. Alternative Universe is 2005. There's an entry in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe volumes that they did the uh, big volumes a couple of years ago. And then there's this one. There's Thor Asgard's Avenger. And I found this particular entry revealing because I'm really positive what I call Wikipedia fans. You know, people who get as much information as they can from Wikipedia or UncannyXMen.net or Marvel Fandom. And as long as you do the work, as long as you go in and, and do the research on your own and, and investigate before you start to claim yourself an expert and before you start to talk about it public. I really have no problem respecting any level of fandom as fully functional, right? But I don't know that I could be okay with an understanding of fandom based on what in some ways read incomprehensible from this handbook entry on Thunderstrike that we didn't even go in to update the treatment of women alone is a bag of dicks. I don't even know what the fuck. His mother is treated like she's nuts. Like, in paragraph descriptions, she comes off crazy in a way that feels pejorative. Also, like, we got none of this information from the Thunderstrike miniseries, right? Like, I didn't completely miss this. No, and we even got a Todd Knock penciled beautiful backup story all about how the original Thunderstrike was cool. And now we have him here and none of the details here are the details from that series and this was released within a year of that series so in fact it might have been released the month that thunderstrike ended for one thing i would have i don't i guess maybe you can't do like maybe it's like a you can't do this with the, the format of a hot moves or anything but like i think it's fair to give a little more time to eric and to kind of split it between the two i don't know i don't know how to do this but the fact that like the first paragraph we start off with is this convoluted soap opera baby hot potato background for Kevin that is not super relevant to anything, most especially the single story that he appeared in, which is then just summarized beat for beat here. It it is very strange that anybody was like, what they need to know is this bonkers parentage situation with various moms and adoption and abandonment, and then she just shows up and takes him back, and I, I... None of this was present as important when the series starts and he has his mom and his stepdad pulling him out of school. So it feels like putting it here, if you really needed to know, you could have summarized it a little more quickly to, yes, not make his mother look insane. And speaking of looking insane, I know that if you read through the whole thing, you do come to understand that Thunderstrike took on several different looks and we get a few different looks of him as Kevin and the disguised mace. Like, I make comics and when we were like trying to really fill up those pages we would do things like this where we took little heads from like every page we could to get like a costume gallery together and you know we threw it up on the website and like that's cool but there is a there's sort of a feeling to this that is very unpolished and unprofessional that I think that the Ten of Swords handbook would never have allowed for and that's 10 years later I absolutely know but this was something that they digitized and it's something that remains up 
up. So it's something that I feel like we can subject to some amount of critical scrutiny. The visual layout of this is really underwhelming. The only thing I'm going to give it is the clarity of what I think is the image from event. And I say the image from Avengers Academy 20. I'm pretty sure that's that image. <laughs> so interesting. Hmm. But they give us first costume, second costume, and his, you know, edgy cool teen boy hmm. look. And I don't think I get a really good sense of why all three costumes are there. Specifically, I do not know why they kept dumb edgelord costume <clears throat> in here. Like, were they really just trying to fill space? Because then you could have kept some of those headshots for the second page. There is something that, because this doesn't even feel as professional as a number of the other pages in the book, because the other pages are either more recognizable characters or characters where they weren't so scroungy for art this feels like they care less about it yeah it feels like one of those moments where there was an editorial mandate like we got thunderstrike so he's got to be in the thor handbook and that's going to be important in case we want to use him but there was not really anything to do with the character and there's another thunderstrike with a lot more appearances but who is dead so like why use him but then the story that we're getting is has so much to do with eric masterson and you then get to the part that really involves Kevin and it is again his his one miniseries explained beat for beat in like two paragraphs well and I can't wait to address that but I need to address like nine things on page one first please I'm sure you were not prepared for me to have like a full length segment on two pages but again it's one of those things where these two pages prove everything that we think about the MC2 and all of the things that touch it the shorthand of the family back and forth stuff with Hercules I didn't understand it because the back and forth is so multi-layered it just sort of feels like a bunch of things that if you know the plot you can understand and fill in the gaps but if it weren't for the fact that it's clear at one point that Hercules is his babysitter I don't know that Slugger Supreme or Young Warrior or Little Soldier as aliases makes sense you mean childhood nicknames given to him by paternal figures oh got it that's not the same thing as aliases and I feel like I had to do a lot of work to put a lot of things together there and that you know the mom doesn't know that Eric is Thunderstrike fine I I can really be okay with that I understand what I can't be okay with is perhaps that at no point did like the Avengers stand up for him it just it paints a really ugly picture of Thunderstrike's mother in a way that just doesn't feel necessary no especially because the Thunderstrike series is just kind of nebulous about her and it's pretty positive on the stepdad which was a beat that we both really liked because it doesn't always need to be contentious and seeing a guy who is not in any way threatened by another man that was part of a family's life and can come in and honor that person was really nice so if nothing else what little depiction you got of the mother was that she chose a really great person to be a partner and father figure to her son that's a great start that's all we need make her great from there we don't need to dig into this kind of convoluted backstory that didn't feel relevant to Kevin's life becoming Thunderstrike. Hold on, because I think you're missing then the most important part of this book. Let's point out that at one point they talk about how his new stepdad takes Kevin to Disney World to ease with the transition and introduced him to weightlifting and calisthenics, hoping Kevin would later earn a football scholarship. Okay, that's grooming. And it reads really weird. He's like, he tried to get the little boy to like him with a trip to Disney in the locker room. 
Like, it's really just some stuff that they don't hear sometimes. Yeah. The way it does read, like, if somebody said, oh, and they took me to Disney World and then he made me start weightlifting when I was a little kid, you'd be like, I think you might have been in danger. But like, you know, no, we saw it happen. So you're putting something into it that's not there. I agree. It's not there. It's just so much of this information. I'm not sure why it is there that that stands out so strangely. Disney World. Like, I understand that by this point they were owned by Disney, but there's something about the took him to Disney World. Well, then you'd think that they would know it's called Walt Disney World. And also, that's not like, oh, synergy. This is going to get this is going to get some passes sold. Yeah. Nobody's like that. I'm going to add Hopper to my ticket. This is if only they had done this sooner. Pleasure Island would still be around. <laughs> so the story reaches some really interesting things I had not expected. For instance, I was not prepared to read that Mephisto <sighs> prevented Bobby Steele's transfer to a West Coast football team. Wouldn't it be amazing if all the other stuff we're covering right now, like Avengers and Ghost Rider and Mephisto being huge right now as like a mover and shaker, all hinges around this one deal Kid Kevin made? Truly. So we get that. Okay. I don't even know how else to, to read this. Okay. Mephisto made Kevin comatose, but the deal was apparently nullified when Odin blessed and healed Kevin. Eric later entrusted Kevin with his secret as Thunderstrike, but apparently sacrificed himself soon afterward to end the Blood Axe curse. The mace seemingly powerless without Eric eventually ended up in government custody. It's not like he dies off panel. What do you mean, apparently? Silly Marvel talk for like, gotcha, he's coming back. Well, he only finally just came back like earlier this year. Yeah. And as like a zombie husk, and then they just kind of got over it. Yeah. But that did give Kevin an appearance. Ultimately, I don't think we're going to be looking at that one in any significant way. But the the thing that perhaps surprised me the most was uh, something you've already pointed out. That note on Earth 982, Kevin physically merged with the mace at age 18, joining that reality's Avengers as Thunderstrike. Yeah, they're really still pushing that this is just a copy of that character. And I'm happy for that Thunderstrike that he kind of gets to live on. Like gods do have variations. So Thunderstrike being kind of like, you know, kind of like a demigod. It's it's nice. This is a weird moment because I don't exactly understand why they're letting so many little like boop MC2 kind of bleed through. But we get another color dot of MC2. And I am eager to know what the ultimate game plan was on that. I guess just the only thing is like, A, why did we need that note? B, I don't really remember physically merging with the mace being the thing. I guess it must have been, but the, uh, more importantly, that Kevin had such a huge rich life. Like that Kevin could have had a whole two pages just about him as an Avenger, not as a hot potato baby and then a Mephisto deal comatose child. I just, that Kevin is obviously better. And of course we can't cover him because he's not relevant to 616 Thor stuff. But at the same time, maybe what this entry proves is that it was a mistake not to shunt him over here and to try and create a new Thunderstrike in the 616. Especially because I am puzzled at how this Thunderstrike has these powers and somehow this does not get covered. 
So, okay. As Eric Matt, no, as Kevin Masterson, he's 5'6", because, you know, he's a child. But as Thunderstrike, he's 6'6". Okay. He goes from 140 to 640. That's phenomenal. But also, I don't know, sometimes I think, like, the density of musculature, it must just be, like, really dense, tight-packed muscle because 640, that's, that. I don't know. He should I mean, be a little mystical, bigger. mystical, obviously. Wait, you think he should be bigger? Physically, if he's 640 pounds, I oh, think he taller. should be physically larger. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Uh, yeah, okay, great. It's it's magical muscle, whatever, no prize, however you want, but I would have accepted and found very impressive and believed anything else about the powers that he had. 300, 350. I was going to put him at 420 max. Like sure. 420 was like, you could convince me of 420 wet holding the mace. Right. 640 is just like, I don't know, people are enormous. It's like somebody was just like, I don't know what weights are and how big people get. So here's a number. And even if there is a steady balance point, it just feels perhaps like this one doesn't come across the way it should. Yeah. His abilities and accessories are in... This is this is unbelievable. Yeah, you want me to go over it right now? Yeah. As Thunderstrike, Kevin possesses superhuman strength, class 50, and his skin and bones are several times denser than an ordinary human's, granting him extreme durability. Although unaware of this ability, Kevin can alert and summon assistance from other hammer bearers when he holds a hammer, even a toy one. That's really weird. The enchanted Thunderstrike mace, made of virtually unbreakable Uru metal, can summon or control weather and project mystical energy. Kevin magically becomes Thunderstrike by striking the mace against the ground and separation from the mace for 60 seconds restores his human appearance, at which point the mace takes on a form of Kevin's choosing, such as a wooden cane or palm-sized trinket. Switching forms instantly heals injuries. Kevin can magically alter Thunderstrike's appearance while transitioning between forms. He can fly at Mach 32 over 24,000 miles per hour by throwing the mace and holding the metal chain and can change direction in midair or hover in place by spinning the mace. When thrown, the mace will return to the thrower and spinning it opens dimensional portals. The mace can also deflect physical and some energy attacks and may have other unrevealed properties. Thus far, only Eric and Kevin Masterson have accessed the mace's magic, but unlike Thor's hammer, others can lift the mace. Kevin also carries a cell phone that can contact Commander Steve Rogers at any time. Like his father, Kevin is left-handed and has difficulty working with his right hand. Kevin is also a skilled athlete with training in multiple sports. What the fuck? What the fuck is that? I, I... Kang should fear this man. Kang should fear this man, but also we should fear sort of like anyone who's listed as this powerful, but has time to also mention that he can call back up and he's left-handed. You should be scared that this man has that much power and that much free time. You should be very nervous. This kid is like, yeah, he's going to kill us all. This is crazy powerful. This is, yeah, I could not believe some of the abilities, even if he holds up a toy hammer. Crazy. I'm sure that's like a little kid power he has. Yeah, like that That one is like, oh, that's a that's an interesting one that nobody else has that I haven't heard of before. But cute. You know, he's younger. His dad was a was a Thor person. It's great that he can interact with the Thor people whenever he needs to. But dimensional portals. When dimensional I say that, portals. I say I love that Shatterstar can do it. And people are like too powerful. And I'm like, yeah, but he's Shatterstar. 
star. He's queer. And everybody's like, oh, yeah, then he can do. And, you know, when I'm like Thunderstrike, dimensional portals, people are going to be like, what? And I'm going to be like Enchanted Uru Mace. And they're going to go, oh. And so like, this isn't even one of those things like when America Chavez showed up and was like, hey, guys, I'm going to Superboy this shit, but I'm going to do it as a Latina. So it's going to be way hotter. And everybody was like, yes, except for all the people that were like, no, what? That's dumb. And, you know, they were wrong. But it's sort of like, I feel like Thunderstrike has the the chops where it's a little bit more like a Shatterstar where you say, oh, you know, he's a Mojoverse character. So he's already kind of transdimensional. I accept it. Where, you know, America Chavez kind of had to prove her value to characters in and fans alike. Thunderstrike has the built-in believability of being the child of a hammer bearer who is a hammer bearer who has already shown super mystical abilities who put up a fight against Mangog who is such a powerful analogous as Guardian that iterations of him appear in multi-universes and let's not forget Thunderstrike in 982 goes to another universe so he's already kind of a transdimensional character in that regard so for me this really states that he is underutilized in every conceivable way yeah this is all like kind of settling with me now and discuss because I read this and I, I read this entire thing and I don't really think until I was like you have to read it and then talk about it with Nico that I really this is ins- this is like why are the Avengers not having a conference and deciding whether or not they need to go kill him or the entire world might be destroyed like this is insane but also gives us a nice little backdoor for how we could see 982 Thunderstrike come into 616 but this character sh- his time is, is now they should yeah. do something with him he is a pretty big deal character in that regard which is why <sighs> I you know I I read Avengers Academy every month as it came out things like giant size Avengers Academy and like there was like a reptile spotlight and I think there was an Avengers Academy spotlight series I followed these books and I really like them and I vaguely remembered Thunderstrike showing up but I don't think I cared as much at that time I think I was like oh that's cool yeah uh the other one's bigger right so I think how little he appeared in the issue really escaped my memory but I remembered that he appeared very little in it so before we get to the very Wikipedia fan level of me to not look a little bit further into before talking about it repeatedly on air appearance of Thunderstrike and Avengers Academy there's just a handful of things I want to hit on the way out the door from the Asgard's Avenger handbook Jane Foster's inclusion here is before any amount of Jane Foster as Thor in canon had occurred she was still a as I pointed out on our coverage of Jane Foster's titles very minor character at this point Carnilla would come on to be a much bigger deal in Jason Aaron and particularly Torin Grunbeck's Thor mythos Alakith is always around I you know he's in this but like I think it probably had a little bit more to do with Thor the Dark World Mangog also a character of note who I've pointed out a few times Mangog big deal the Norn Stones or as I like to call them Mike Murdoch's daddy and oh shit 982 Thena is in the back of this book I was so freaking shocked and just like I just don't understand what goes on sometimes because why is she there Thunderstrike is I just don't know I think maybe they feel they covered Thunderstrike enough through the other Thunderstrike but there's such different character uh, anyway there's there's so many possible explanations I just could not have known you know I don't have a whole lot to say literally Thunderstrike appears on the final panel of Avengers Academy number 20 has no dialogue 
is in one group shot and never appears in the title again. But because that's comics and you can do that kind of stuff, this character's you know fucking stresses me out levels of minor appearance in this book it's you know wiki famous i given what you get out of the asgard's avenger thing you would think that this would have just been the guy that you need to train and that right at the midway point right at the end of issue 20 of what's going to be a 40 issue series i think it's probably technically more issues than that because there's some point ones but what a good time to and they're like this will be a whole new thing we're letting more people in and the dude who can open open dimensional portals and fly at 24,000 miles per hour is probably someone that you want to train and make everybody aware exists and is being trained. And they even name dropped that he was offered Avengers Academy in the Asgard Avengers spotlight. So that this is his only appearance. Maybe Christos Gage wasn't on board and he was told he had to make the connection. Maybe it was a situation where they were originally going to lean heavier into using Thunderstrike, but they decided ultimately to go with using X-23. At the time that she was X-23, of course, now she's, you know, Wolverine. But I don't know. It really feels like this was a decision to work the character into a bigger position in the Marvel Universe by positioning him in significant locations and describing him as goddamn. But then ultimately, very little happens with him that isn't forgettable, troubling, or yeah, no, those are your two options. Damn, so little happened with him, you only get two options. Not even a background appearance in Avengers Academy. I'm frustrated because I do think he still is that kind of character. I think he really does still continue to represent a lot of what's so great about the Marvel Universe and about the potentiality of creating lineage heroes. You know, I'm concerned about dynastic government, but I'm not concerned about dynastic superheroes. It's comics and you can make the characters trans form or replace them or do whatever you need to do to make the characters work ultimately. But I feel like this was a really not great use of Thunderstrike. Uh, These two stories don't do a whole lot for me. Ultimately, he's not in Avengers Academy. And while I do love how powerful they make it clear that we should think Kevin is, I can barely understand his backstory well enough to parse it for the details that I think I'm supposed to get as a reader reading Asgard's Avengers. Yeah, I think that is essentially my take from it too and just really I mean it's another one of those times where I would have loved to have known if there was a plan that changed if this was just something that somebody wanted to do but there was really no intention for follow up and if there was ever any talk about making that attempt to pull this character or any characters over from the MC2 So this is one of those be careful what you wish for because you just might get it when you grow up or whatever situations. But the Pussycat Dolls These Ain't. We are here to discuss Fear Itself, The Homefront 5 through 7. And one of the things that I really like about this story is that it gives us something we kind of always want. It's kind of like Spider-Girl and Thunderstrike and we have a vague stand-in for Rena in the form of X-23. You know, they're two very different women, but we have wanted 
Serena in this mix for so long. And I got Amadeus Cho. I'm thrilled about that. And you could kind of sub in like any number of characters from the MC2 as the Amadeus Cho stand-in. But whew, this does not go how I wanted. No, sir. These were roughly eight to 10 page backup stories contained in this mini series, which mostly played host to a speedball story, which is then referenced in Avengers Academy. And I really like that Power Man Victor Alvarez from the Power Man and Iron Fist series that launched during Daredevil Shadowland. It always comes back to him. I really like that he's in this. He's actually a Fred Van Lente creation. And so he fits the bill really well. I like what he offers. but And appropriately, he's about to be in Thunderbolt. So good time yeah. for us to be talking about him. I feel a little jilted by this story because as much as I think Fred Van Lente is kind of a team player, really, he's the sort of writer that it's never weird to hear that he's been on any project in the Marvel Universe. He's very much a writer who has toured the, you know, the Thorverse and he's appeared on a number of titles. I just, I don't know. I think I'm surprised that he did such a surface read on everyone, including Thunderstrike, who kind of comes off the same way US Agent did. I feel like this does not carry nuance. The thing that really bums me out is this is a character, almost the entire personality of which is from the five issue Thunderstrike series that came before this. Any of the back stuff, like when he was a child, I really don't think you need to bring into the mix. I don't think that the character that you see in the Thunderstrike miniseries is super obviously informed by any of his backstory with his dad. He's a little bit of a blank slate at that point, and he starts off as kind of a dick and a little bit of a brat. And then his mentor, Grinhilda, shows up. He becomes Thunderstrike. And really quickly, he becomes a good guy who is in awe of his situation, who loves and misses his father and realizes that becoming Thunderstrike is a way to connect with his father in a certain way and embrace his legacy. And he's still a doofy 15-year-old, but in a way that you're like, this kid isn't an asshole. He was just clearly hurting and a bit of a brat. And then he had this life-changing experience. And now he's going to go on and be a hero. And he's going to be a pretty cool guy. And holy shit, is that not the person in this book? No, they pivoted to sort of like pointless hard racism. Yeah, in, in the first page. What's shocking to me is this was released about 10 years ago. About 10 years ago, Fred Van Lente was 40 and he'd been writing Hercules slash Hulk with Greg Pak for a while. So he'd been working on Amadeus Cho for a while. So he definitely should have had a sense of Amadeus Cho's voice in a way that was a little bit more authentic. That's where I think I am the most confused. These characters, which includes Aranya as the Spider-Girl stand-in, they all have sort of a sense of no one's quite doing a rap battle, but everybody thinks they're supposed to be talking like a rap battle. Adults don't understand how the youth culture interacts outside of being like everybody's aggressive and wants to fight each other. I think that all of these characters come in at like a 37 in intensity and the situation itself isn't really clear what's going on. They all find themselves on a sort of like helicarrier situation and they're all trying to understand how they all got together and it turns out it's Amadeus Cho and he brought them together to take care of what is ultimately the least interesting part of the arc. So I don't know. I found myself a little dismayed by what felt a little angstier than was necessary to communicate what should have been kind of an exciting 
opportunity to see some young heroes come together, but instead it's just kind of a crossover mess. Yeah. I mean, I can't really speak to the Amadeus Cho voice at this point, but he does come off as really uh, bratty. And it, I know how much you love Amadeus Cho. So I, I have a hard time believing that his voice is this. I get confident. And, you know, that's the whole thing with Braun. Like he's overconfident in a way that it's very clear. Everybody's like, dude, we want to love you, but don't be a dummy. And this is just like, we don't even want to love this person. Like this is just an antagonistic asshole who thinks he's better than everybody, which, you know, is not helped by blatant racism against Asian people, mutants, everybody that we get from Kevin, who is like a roid rage monster for some reason. When again, he's only really had five issues of character development that ended him on such a good note. Laura is a version of herself that is less evolved than where she technically was at this point, but the voice isn't like offensively wrong. It is a voice that she's had at some point. So it's a specific mood. Yeah. You know, like her whole, like, I don't know, humor is not really at this point in the story, in, in her character journey where she is, but that was a thing with her. Fine. We can let that one go for a lot of, you know, she is stressed. She kind of fell back on old habits and she forgot humor. I don't know anything about spider girl Aranya. She's the least antagonistic, I guess. And then poor power man is just trying to hold it all together. Yeah. I really like that. This is at least pretty early on in these characters timelines because it makes some of this interaction pretty forgivable. And it's something that I would probably wish to write at some point and really address how these characters have all kind of gone on to be their own thing. They're all still either appearing directly or they've appeared, you know, Thunderstrike still will have more starring time in the form of as guardians of the galaxy at some point. He'll have 10 issues of that, which is going to be on our docket. So, you know, we are still yet going to cover more of it, but you know that Fred Van Lente created Power Man, this character and had him train with Iron Fist. It makes me feel like it probably would have been better if this starred Power Man instead of involved Power Man, because one of the things that I also didn't appreciate was Kevin had a bump bump kind of comeback for every fucking thing and every fucking one. At one point, he's homophobic. He's frequently racist. He makes the comment of he's not going to call Power Man a man. Yeah, well, you know what, fucko? You don't look like Thunder, so I don't think I want to call you Thunderstrike either. Oh, no, you're made of sound. Well, but that also really gestures at the idea of calling a black man boy. And I don't think that was intentional, but I just like, if he's Power Man and you're saying you won't say man, uh, I, I just... What a mess. And one of the things that I liked was that at least the team got the cover of issue six, but it's sort of like, I don't understand why, because nothing that happened in issue five at any point felt like it accomplished anything for all that matters. They could have met for one page, had a couple of zingers, and then these shark mutant creatures could have shown up. Uh, You know, you know me, you know, my weird, you know, funny anthropomorphic animal monsters. Oh, yeah. I'd be fine with it if the shark creatures were still in it. They're not. Oh, yeah. They're great. They're fantastic. Uh, But I don't think that I needed eight pages to get to them. I would have rather the action been going. You know, Tommy D would have had the action rolling right away. Yeah. And that's, I think, what I'm a little bit bitter about. With Spider-Girl, we always felt like they took advantage of how long it was going to be and still did everything, every issue. Because that was the problem. Nothing got to breathe. And yet, because nothing got to breathe, the characters never got to advance and evolve. So 
it was a simultaneous too much too fast and not enough not often enough and here I feel like we only get 24 pages across three issues I wanted 24 pages of story and instead of getting what felt like 24 pages of one story broken up three ways I felt like I kind of got eight page versions of three issues that still didn't tell me very much yeah I think that really is the correct way to describe what happened and I so much time is spent on these people being antagonistic towards each other in a way that that first exchange from the from really the first page but the second one is where there's a lot of dialogue but within two or three pages of that they have already been so horribly nasty to each other and it's just such an ugly situation that to have gone from that and just slowly built up a working relationship for all these characters for them to discover how they work together for them to get out of a thing to fight together could have been a really interesting thing but instead we keep falling back to they are either arguing and being absolutely horrible or they are fighting but also there's always a bigger threat looming and it kind of ties into why they don't understand why they're there it is just so much that is not organized around any central idea or principle all the parts could be okay but they really needed a structure and it needed to kind of that structure needed to understand what the great elements are and what the kind of tough to swallow ones that even if you have to have them you want to move on really quick yeah and there were such like moments of yes that i really liked i didn't need thunderstrike and amadeus to keep arguing but i do like that they work together to accomplish a moment and similarly i loved what looked like a fastball special good to know aranya's that strong yeah but yeah i did like what felt like you know a couple of key character moments that really highlighted what i like about these characters but the fact that everybody just wants to run away felt very out of character especially because Amadeus is like you're such big heroes it had to be you guys and that Amadeus ultimately betrayed them by lying to them in the first place I would have liked the story more if Amadeus was like hey guys I kidnapped you hear me out though here's why I would have been able to swallow that a little more easily than I'm able to handle he lied to them and just thought it would be fine he's friends with the Hulk I also want to throw out the disappointing racial insensitivity of this splash page on digital page 23 of issue 6 where the kids are all shown with their hero counterparts so Laura is shown with Logan off in the distance Thunderstrike is shown with Thor Aranya is shown with Spider-Man and then Power Man is shown with uh, Iron Fist which I understand the connection but his name is Power Man and he was introduced in Power Man and Iron Fist and I just think it was to do an iconic splash page like this and to not put Luke Cage up there was something I can understand being the proposal when this was written and maybe even the first pass of the drawing, but I am shocked that nobody said, no, it can't be Danny. It needs to be Luke. Especially because Danny at this point in comic culture still stands for cultural appropriation on a massive level. Yeah, we knew that at this point. Like we were now fighting back against it and looking for, and it took still way too long, but this was in the public conscious and we really kind of wanted Danny to move on from Iron fist. And I actually thought that the least engaging part of this whole arc was the parts that involved the, I guess, you know, the battle in Honolulu. You know, number one, I do not like calling it Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, holy shit. That really just felt um, poor taste. And I, you know, don't care for that. If, if It's just weird. I'm not sure that it actually is in poor taste. I'm not sure that it actually is a negative thing to evoke, but it feels very specific for there is a certain proclivity toward insensitivity 
creativity where in a story where you are having a character be outwardly racist, it seems weird that you would involve an Asian character in something you're referring to as Pearl Harbor. I understand it is not the same culture, but it's an insensitivity that we should be filtering. I mean, just like the earth is 75% water. Coastline is fucking everywhere. (laughs) This did not need to be. Hawaii was not important to this in any way. And even if you were like, no, because of certain things, they actually do need to be off the coast of Hawaii. They could have just been off the coast of Hawaii and you title this anything else. I just don't understand at all. They could have been the Hawaii Five. Sure. Like, there you go. I don't even care. Like, it's too easy to use something super evocative that you don't really pay off because that's what I feel happened here. There really didn't feel like a payoff to the story. It felt like it just kind of ended and was meant to be the entry point for Thunderstrike to Avengers Academy or the entry point for any number of these characters to suddenly know each other. But instead, what I feel like I walked away with was a group of heroes that I wish I could have seen together any other way. And especially that moment at the end where Laura kicks Amadeus Cho in the balls. Yeah. That felt so beyond surface. It felt particularly reductive, not just reductive of these characters, but reductive of the idea of the way male and female heroes interplay. You know, the thing that needs to be reminded is that Laura is a superhuman. And yeah, I know she has superhuman senses and she would never purposely incapacitate Amadeus Cho's genitals forever. But there is something about a superhuman physically assaulting a human. And I know that now he's brawn and that's a very different conversation. But this is from before that time. And this did read to me as an abuse, especially because she went for his genitals. It gave it a really weird context that didn't enhance anything. First off, it's immature. Like, huh, I kicked him right in the junk is not funny. Secondly, like, I think you're being very generous in saying, like, because of Laura's senses and her, like, ability as a fighter, she did this probably without causing him permanent injury. I don't think anybody who wrote or edited this thought about that and kind of put that in to be one of the reasons why it was okay. You know, he did a bad thing. These people do not have to like him. They came together in a heroic con. If she had just pushed him into a puddle, whatever. They clearly are pissed at him and that is completely reasonable. You know, if they'd done the old trick where one of them like gets on all fours behind him, the other one pushes him and he falls over like that. Goofy, stupid prank. But like kicking the balls is just, and I'm not saying like, how could we do this? Like it just is for something that already isn't super great and has a lot of weird racist moments. It doesn't feel like that being the way that it is communicated that these people, while a team and while they accomplish something for a moment, are very upset with this person. It just feels like the worst impulses. This is when I had to go look up how old Fred Van Lenty was because I was like, this is one of those things where like Tom DeFalco is super old and doesn't realize that like teenagers don't behave this way and don't think that's cool and kicking somebody in the balls is immature and not funny and not like a fun teen thing. And I was like, yeah, I was like, Fred Van Lenty probably is 60 and didn't get that. Nope, he's 39. He is 39 years old. And there at that point. Yeah, right. And I definitely feel like could have been in touch with the zeitgeist enough to know at least this much. And I don't like the optics that it's a character who, you know, just to dial into what you're saying, one of the reasons that we've praised Rena is that Rena comes from a background that is not often shown in strong female heroes. She's not parentless or specifically fatherless or specifically motherless in a way that 
that affects her trajectory. She has no history of sexual abuse or physical abuse or uh, emotional, mental, or safety trauma. She is a character who is fully realized as a teenager and wants to become fully realized as a Wolverine. So Rena really is a success story on a lot of levels for what she represents as the possibility of a female character. Laura, while, you know, a, a treasure and it's, you know, she's Wolverine, period. And, you know, she comes from a very troubling past and a very troubling number of tropes that I really wish hadn't happened to her. And so seeing Laura here and contextualizing that Laura has been a victim of sex trafficking in, you know, in so many words where she did not have as much agency in her time in prostitution as many women in sex work do. And that is a valid way to make a living and to also celebrate yourself. Laura was not given that celebration and instead was a device of male creators who showcased her in an unflattering way and an unsafe way, a cruel way. And just that it's her kicking him in the ball sucks. Yeah. And gives us nothing and a not great story, you know, because there are, there's time in this last page even to be like, Hey, we hate you, but heroes are heroes. And you know, you're a dick, but we, we got it done. And maybe we have some cap on this that is like in 10 years when a young person who read this becomes a writer and comes to the ex offices and is pitching a story. They talk about how, you know, they're going to somehow put all these characters together and reference that one moment where they all came together and did a thing and like, look how much Amadeus has changed. So he's probably cool. There's any number of ways just to wrap it up and hit the beat of fuck you, Amadeus, but not do this, man. It just, it, and it's so disappointing that it's from somebody that I would have thought would know better. It ultimately leaves kind of a sour taste in my mouth on the story that I already didn't feel great about. And I find myself giving the story a C, C minus. I wouldn't say don't read it. I guess, yeah, I guess I would. There's, no, I'm giving it a D and saying don't. Yeah, I guess I would say don't read it. It doesn't add anything to Laura. It doesn't really add anything to Power Man. It doesn't do anything for Amadeus. Thunderstrike sucks in it. It doesn't really give you a great sense of Anya. So yeah, I guess it's a don't read and I guess I'll downgrade it a bit. Yeah, D, C minus, something like that. One and day in the magical future where somebody does write that thing that I'm talking about where all these people get together and somehow they manage to recontextualize this whole thing and like maybe the fear was controlling them or something. I don't know. But someday somebody will do something and we can look back on this and go, with all that work that that writer did to redeem this moment, now I can give it a C. Yeah, I think part of what I'm reacting to, as always, is the desire for the potential that this universe could be celebrated in the way that it deserves often overtakes my better judgment about what does and doesn't work. And it really is just a desire to see this universe and its characters thrive. There's something so engaging about seeing what we always wanted to see from the MC2, but seeing it in this amazing iteration that manifests in the proper Marvel Universe. Yeah, sure, that's not the Spider-Girl I'd wanted, but it's a cool Spider-Girl that I know from Spider-Girl. And yeah, that's not the Thunderstrike I wanted, and he's problematic in a way that defeats my enjoyment of the book, so it's sort of like, it's half and half on the trades and the stand-ins worked for me. I don't know, the potential of this story still gets an A-plus in my heart, but I think the execution really does have to get that D. Yeah, and this is the mixed bag that we need to play around with, with the idea that a lot of these characters and concepts that came up from MC2 could have had a life worth paying attention to had the same person not been writing them
them the whole time. And, you know, Tom DeFalco at times wrote stuff that I really, really made me angry and I didn't like. But a lot of times the frustration was more, not that it was really bad, but that it was just like kind of mediocre or didn't do anything. And that that was really where you needed to get some new life in just to put some energy in. The mediocrity was a lack of energy. And now we are getting that with new authors on some of these characters or new spins on these characters that authors are doing. And what that means is some of them are going to be awesome and some of them are going to be really, really bad. And that shakes things up and gives us a perspective that we can say, I get what I want out of a Thunderstrike. That Thunderstrike miniseries, not the best thing ever, but I really do think, like I walked away from it being like, they did it. Like, the you know, this is a good kid. He was a real brat at the beginning, but like, I love Grunhilda. I love that he figured it all out, found an appropriate version of his costume. Apparently he's it's stupid, insanely powerful. So that's fun. Like they managed to do some stuff that I really, really like and think is cool and think could inform the Thunderstrike that we know from 982 if they were to meet or merge or whatever. This is the work that I want to see for these characters. I don't want it all to be good. That is not fair to expect and it's not how development happens in comics. This is a story that I really do not think was great, but it gives me... I understand now that it's really important that Thunderstrike not be ragey and that it not be a cavalier note that this teen who can get big stomps into the room and is an asshole. And that's an important thing that I want to pay attention to. And this is how I really understood that. I really love the ways you're discussing this book and the reasons that we need to be thinking about the ways that we portray these characters. You know, it's such a funny, funny little world we live in when you think about the stories that wind up really sticking with the cultural vernacular for a long period of time. And I think about the ways that all said and done, the Firestar Mini is just a little footnote in the history of X-Men and the history of Emma Frost, but it gets referenced a lot. And I think about the ways that the brilliant new X-Men 139 explored Emma Frost's psyche and her cousin Jocasta is mentioned in one line and winds up on every fucking Wikipedia for Emma Frost as family members. But you could spend your entire life wasting your breath trying to get people to recognize that she led Gen X in a pantsuit. And it is so significant that you can't predict or control the parts of fiction that fandom holds onto or the parts of fandom that get a hold of that fiction. So you need to be really careful with how you shape that story. If you ever want us to come around on Thunderstrike, you need to think really critically about what making him a racist, homophobic roid monster does, especially when the only thing you have to look back on is a miniseries at the end of which he becomes really well adjusted. If perhaps there was a synergistic disaster where they were producing this at the same time that Thunderstrike was in production and they only had Thunderstrike 1 and 2 to go by. Okay, sure. Because, you know, the final design would have already been in for the end of the book before you start at the beginning of the book. Totally. Sure. But um, that's not what I get here. I get that this is a specific iteration of this character. It doesn't feel like it's based on anything from earlier moments. It just feels like it's a bad take and it's sort of a canker. It's one one bad apple really does spoil the whole bunch and the reverberating effect of such a bad take on a character that did have such a significant effect on us it's why we can't quite let go of some of the Laura stuff and it's why it's hard to give all of the homophobic racist or misogynist tones a hand wave because sometimes you know what we all make mistakes I say homophobic stuff by accident and I, I apologize immediately it happens sometimes you know you hope that somebody doesn't read the thing you said a little bit wrong but when when there's nothing else a 
already rooting you in that direction, it can become really difficult to convince yourself as a reader to continue giving the work the benefit of the doubt. As a reader, I always fundamentally want to give every work, you know, a 100% benefit of the doubt. But with everything Kevin said, which not only missed the point of Kevin as a character, but in many ways missed the ideas that support the best Hallmark stories of young Marvel team-ups, camaraderie, a desire to survive together, I really feel like this story, the more we're discussing it, yeah, I'm probably going to give this an F, actually. And I think because it so badly missed my A-plus desire for this team-up, this is a little bit below Captain America core for me. And like, I want to be clear, Fred Van Lente has done some really beautiful work, Absolutely. really cool stories. Yeah. And, you know, Alessandro Vitti is amazing, but this ain't it. No, this definitely ain't it. I'm very confused by a lot of Captain America core, but if you showed me how that American dream could be part of anything else and how that, you know, that story happened for the character that we know and it's part of who she is. There's there's stuff to take away from that that I'm like, yeah, and there was no part where I was like, that's not American dream. This is offensive. I can't read this. This is really horrible. This is upsetting me. I'm angry. It just like, you know, didn't really didn't really nail it for me versus Fear Itself Homefront really like I was upset at points and that's just unfortunate. But I do appreciate the extreme and I appreciate a fantastic author that I've loved on many things taking a swing and having a huge miss we all of us who are creative minded have those moments and a lot of us never get the stage to do them in front of people who are going to evaluate them the way that we are and for a lot of us that is a protective safety because to be subject to that kind of scrutiny having had a failure is painful and I don't think anybody does it flippantly or not putting their best foot forward but failures are how you understand what the successes need to be this was a failure but I really do in some ways understand what I want for Kevin more and that's that's really good for me and frankly I'll be really interested to see how this plays on my understanding of Power Man when the Thunderbolts comes out which I'm really excited about so I don't regret that I read it in doing this work and I don't regret the work that I will do in understanding all of these characters as a result but I would say that for other people you don't need to do that same stuff go looking for the better stories that also aren't potentially triggering. Well, I do like that this gave us one thing that I don't understand how either one of us hasn't said to the other yet, but happy first Aranya in the 616 on our show. Oh, yeah. I don't know what happened in Spider-Man family, so I don't know if I can even say that. But yes, but maybe not, but also yes, but no, but maybe, who knows? Alternate universes are crazy, especially when they're just future path present versions of the current one. Yeah, uh, we're going to be taking a look at some genuinely exciting material in the coming episodes. I feel like these last couple were a bit of a slog. You know, there was just some weight to some of these stories I didn't care for, but we're going to be taking a really comprehensive look look at every moment of May Day in Spider-Verse and uh, none of the rest of the shit goodbye. So I... <laughs> I'm not a spider guy. I'm just not. And I'm never gonna be a spider guy. But I am also, you know that I'm, I think I'm even less of a spider guy than you. I'm pretty sure you are. Yeah. But weirdly, this is like kind of doing it for me. It is the thing, like people are using Mayday and most of it is stuff that I'm like, stop. But she, she hasn't disappeared guys. Like 
like she has maybe not every single year, but still really regularly popped up and stuff. Like she she still exists. She has not been relegated to a corner of the universe. And it doesn't feel like a life support situation. It just feels like um, you know, when people are like, Oh, I talked to this artist, you know, musicians are like, I talked to this artist and we're definitely gonna collaborate one day. It's just like we can't make our schedules work. Um, it's how Dolly Parton is always supposed to appear as a judge on drag race, but the scheduling just never works. And it's never the it's not that the idea is dead and never going to happen. It's just we have no idea when. And I just know that May's moment is coming. And I don't think these little weird appearances where the writing isn't always what I want are like continuing to drag her along on life support. I think it's just like we're trying. We just don't know when. We don't know how. But I really do think it's going to happen. And that's the most exciting thing about exploring some of these spidery stories that aren't really where my heart would be at if I hadn't done the work on May. But I'm I'm in. And we do have a few more treats for ourselves. A couple of single panel and single <laughs> issue appearances. We are very easy to please and we can talk about a lot of stuff. So buckle in, kids. Yeah, we're going to see a little bit more Rena. We're going to see a little bit more Fabian. Pretty excited about that uh, Black Tarantula moment coming up. We're, of course, going to follow May through her appearances and into Spider-Geddon and Edge of the Spider-Verse. But until then, TK, dude, it has been my pleasure talking about so little so much so often and un- oh. i was just gonna say we do go on oh we do and until we return to go on even more where can everybody find you find me also on wednesdays and fridays on x's for podcasts talking about all the current books and find me on twitter and instagram at x nate x gray x you can find me those show places with this guy as well as you can find me on twitter and instagram at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n and you guys can find my original comic work over at kid riot comics.com as well as in the recently released young men in love anthology i'm surrounded by some industry greats like anthony Oliveira, cena grace joe glass matt minor it's an amazing collection full of phenomenal voices and i couldn't be more proud than to be part of it we recently relaunched our youtube over at hubs plus network where you can check out extended versions of the things you hear here as audios as amazing videos with graphics by our awesome graphic designer kevo my awesome husband who has been helping me run and produce this show for a while making all of the amazing episode images and graphics that we run on the Twitter and over on the website. We also have the Billy Club, which is our examination of Daredevil starting with his earliest appearances in 1964, going story by story, issue by issue, examining what makes the Hornhead amazing. Now that's done by myself and regular X's for podcast contributor Tori Sheehan, and we're having an amazing time. Sure, the 1960s can be a really hard time to look at comics, which is why we're definitely using a critical eye and trying to keep a pretty light heart about it. And don't forget, if you came to this show for MC2, you can check out an incredible backlog of amazing episodes over on X's for Podcast, where we have over 350 episodes for you to check out. And if you're just looking for general Marvel and nerd coverage, you can always check out myself and my amazing husband, Kevo's original podcast, HTML, Husbands Talking More or Less, where the Hubs Plus Network gets its name, where you can check out our examinations of the full MCU slate of films, plus things like Alien, Predator, the Star Wars universe, and more. We have an amazing time bringing all of this content to you. You guys can check out this show Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. We love making this show for you, and you can find out all the information about it on X's for Podcast on Twitter and at xsforpodcast.com. And until next time, when we swing our way into the Spider-Verse, and no, depressingly, not the cool animated movie, but if she makes an appearance in it, I'm, I'm there with you. Yeah. Keep those Cohen gateways open, those mutant lights lit, and we'll see ya.
Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things Exes for Podcast, check out Exes for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube.